We don't need to reinvent the wheel when it comes to sustainability. It's following the leads of cultures that have embodied this, but we actually don't have enough stories of what that specifically means yes. in specific contexts. Yes, exactly. Yo, guys, my name is Nadir and I'm a storyteller filmmaker. Imagine Bourdain and Riz Ahmed had a love baby together. It would probably sound like me. See, over the years, I've had the fortune to meet inspirational, pioneering people from diverse backgrounds. And this podcast is born out of recent events that have left so many of us feeling estranged and alienated from the world around us. Recorded in London live, it explores the world of diverse thought leaders, creatives and artists who are stretching the confines of culture. See, I'll invite friends with a burning desire to make sense of our identity, work, and place in this changing world. And together we'll investigate what it means to be multi-hyphenated and multifaceted and hopefully ignite a sense of pride and power for who we are and our ability to make change. I am so excited to go on this journey with you. So give this podcast a follow on whatever platform you're listening to. It helps me a lot and it also allows me to improve and be more useful to you. Happy listening. Tonight is about someone very special who I've learned a lot from personally. Um, there's very rare to have someone who articulates the complexity of this world and its issues of climate, sustainability, her heritage, culture, in such a sophisticated, powerful, and elegant way. She's a friend, and I've learned a lot, and I can't wait to deep dive into the journey that is her life and really zoom in on you know, challenges and triumphs that have happened throughout her career that might help <coughs> us on our own trajectories. It might not be directly related. It might be, but I think there'll be lots to learn in the inspiring journey that is, and please, a loud applause for Aditi Maya. <laughs> so we've been talking like a long time to like make this happen. And I'm glad we're finally here. I know, I no be, pressure with that intro, damn. God, you better live up to it now. <laughs> I would love to hear from your words how you would describe your work and what you do. Yes, so I identify as a visual storyteller in the sustainable fashion space. I am trying to bridge cultures through fashion and allowing fashion to be this vehicle for us to think about climate action and our relationships to one another and our relationships to the planet. Um, I guess in terms of specific titles, it spans everything from labor rights organizer in LA, um, photojournalist, content creator online, and yeah, someone just trying to operate in community, which is an interesting thing that I think we'll get into in this conversation today. How does someone fall into what you do? I mean, like, presumably you are in your mid-20s, um, growing up at like 17, 18, when we're kind of formulating ideas of what we want to be. How does someone like yourself from suburban California? So, yeah, the cusp of L.A. and Orange County. How does someone from that part of California suddenly feel inspired to start tackling the world through fashion and sustainability? Yeah, so it started when I was 16, 17. This was the year I was going into my undergrad. And I wasn't someone that grew up with like a passion for fashion or even identified as an environmentalist, to be quite honest with you. Um, but at this time, I wanted to study journalism. And I think when I look back, one theme that always rings true is making sense of the macro through the micro. 
And storytelling was that avenue. Um, and at this time, I started thinking more and more about fashion. This was the era when Tumblr was really popular. So you had all these you know, badass brown girls online kind of proclaiming hyphenated identity and things like that. And then I learned about a factory collapse that had, had happened in Bangladesh, um, Rana Plaza for those that might be familiar. And this was an earthquake in the industry. Basically, we had this like collective consciousness that yeah, sweatshops are a thing, but you had this incident where you had an eight-story garment factory producing for some of the world's biggest names. And it was ordered to evacuate one day because structural cracks were found in the building. But there was so much pressure from upper management to have workers complete orders that they were called back into mm. work. And when I learned about this, I just remember obviously like thinking about what it meant to have South Asia being this hot spot of labor exploitation, um, but also balancing that with such a rich textile history and culture. And the discourse at that time became buy our way into a new reality, conscious consumerism. I was going to school at UC Irvine, which is kind of in Newport Beach, like this super white, well-off neighborhood. And I, my first internship to just kind of get involved in the space was this brand that was employing like women coming from human trafficking in South Asia. And there was just so much discord in that space of like what a theory of change for liberation was going to look like. It was literally like buy these $150 pants to save the world. And so I started thinking more critically as someone who came from a low income background of what does it actually mean to engage with sustainability? So I was being exposed to this lexicon of, again, conscious consumerism, vote with their dollar. But what does that mean for someone who comes from a household where your grandfather is the ultimate vanguard of sustainability because he's worn the same thing for the last 20 years? Mm. Or this culture of passing things down? And so I would say that was a starting point of thinking critically about sustainability from a lens of privilege and going beyond conscious consumerism. Yes, it's important, but you can't liberate or buy your way into a new reality and that's a pretty like radical way of thinking because like traditionally we think you know there's this kind of assumption that being concerned about the climate is for a certain class of people and um but you're what you're inherently telling me that within your kind of lower social income background it was inherently part of the cultural fabric at home yeah. can you go into like the mechanics of what did that actually look like at home like what were these cultural isms that made you really aware of how say sustainability is at the core of your cultural context? Yeah. So the way I kind of define sustainability now is like truly rooting yourself in community and challenging disposability culture. It's something I say all the time. And I say that because at that point, I really started reflecting on my upbringing and what that instilled in terms of ideas of sustainability because of economic realities, but also cultural norms. So um, at this point, I was really lucky to have grown up with the presence of my grandparents. Mm. And I think about my grandfather who came in his 80s, but took our very barren backyard and transformed that into this beautiful little orchard, working the land every day. I thought about my grandmother who would take every little scrap and create crocheted quilts out of it or just repair every little thing. And so coming from that sort of lineage of custodians of the land and artisans in a very holistic sense made me realize that sustainability was an, an unraveling of like ancestral identity in many ways. Mm. And I think the other thing is 
this is when Instagram was quite new. So I'm contextualizing this. It's what, like 2014, 2015. So you kind of had this idea of the fashion influencer kind of burgeoning online. And I think the reason I really value this conversation is so many people who become, you know, public figures in this space, like we hear about their origin story, but seldom do you hear about the people that love them into being mm. and those stories. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot, right? When you kind of have a cult of personality and like, you know, their origin story. But I think for me, this idea of being loved into being, and I think that provides a more hyper-specific understanding of what sustainability means in the context of a culture, in the context of a home. And that's what the last few years has been, like unraveling that. But that's why I'm like super excited to talk about you. Um, there's, you know, there's a, you know, the, the luxury of interviewing you as opposed to watching an interview with you, because you do operate in very like climate conscious spaces. Mm. But there is a very like racially homogenous kind of environment about them. There aren't many people who look like us in that space. And as a result, I would say generalizing majority of the time you are being interviewed by like a middle-aged man or a woman yeah. who comes from like a European background. Um, so there is only like a cultural superficial level which you're able to access, yeah. right? It's like, what are five ways to be sustainable? Yeah, like, oh yeah, buzzwords or speed round. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I hate it. What <laughs> I'm super looking forward to like getting into the details yeah. is because there's a, there's a cultural level which we understand each other. There's an experience as a home. When you talk to me about like the granddad at home or the grandmother with a sewing box in a kind of cookie tin or my grandmother with a suitcase that had like weird things like, I don't know if any of your grandparents did this. My my nanny had like a ponytail. Just mine. (laughs) A ponytail? (laughs) It was like, basically it was her old hair. She would like, had the strand of her hair. Was that just my grandma? What was it, like thread or something? Um, I, I'm, I'm not too sure what it was, but basically <laughs> back in the day, I think they used to like keep lockets of hair as like remembrance oh. of people. Istra's nodding her head. Did your grandma? Mom had one. There we are. Mm. <laughs> Oof, someone else. Oh <laughs> I was like, wow, great start. No, but what I mean by that is there are these cultural uh, traditions in which we are able to resonate and relate with. Mm. Um, and going deeper into the idea of, yes, your origin story, but like what did that house look like in terms of the cultural uniqueness of it like what was it was it was it literature like how did your grandfather give you vehicles to access a deeper understanding of who you are which eventually led to you arriving at where you are Mm. today um yeah I think one of the first things that that comes to mind is having a father a really interesting father who is quite anti-capitalist in nature but obviously didn't have that language and so even though we came from like a low-income background from a very young age, he was like, you love photography, you love storytelling. You're one of the few people that have the privilege of identifying your passion at a young age. Chase that, money will follow. And so it was this really interesting dynamic where I felt like I had the luxury of being surrounded by a very present family. You know what I mean? Like, I grew up in a neighborhood where my grandmother was across the street at my cousin's house, which is where we grew up until we could have our own space. And so it really was like a village in its own way. Like my mom wouldn't know where I was until 8 p.m. because I was chilling with my grandma, who was like, you know, teach me some words of English because I need to pass pass Mm. my citizenship test. Mm. So she'd be like, how do you say this in English? And I'd tell her, and she'd be like, this is how you say it in Punjabi. Mm. Um, And so... Yeah, I think the presence of elders was a really big thing. Um, When I visit my cousins who are still in India, 
they often say like, you have such a time capsule understanding of Punjab. But my reference points were two generations back, right? The songs that they taught me, the way that I speak. And so I think that sort of nostalgic understanding of Punjab for better or for worse was a really grounding force in my life. Um, once I got a bit older in high school, you know, I went from being this super shy girl to getting into Bhangra and Gidda and a lot of folk songs of Punjab. And I remember one day I was like listening to this one artist learning the words of this song and I'm singing it and my grandma starts singing it with me. And I think this was a new song, right? And she goes like, you know, we would sing this back in my day. Like I used to be the captain of our like team, if you want to call it that back in the day. So I think dance and song was like my first actual touch point with like thinking about culture in that way yeah, yeah, and yeah. what it really means to like sit at the feet of the elders, which I know is something that you think about and talk about quite often and learn the context of a space and the values that framed that 100%. generation. Um, and it's interesting with Bhangra specifically, like obviously it's fun, like you have Diljeet at Coachella. But a lot of my first exposure was looking at Bhangra through the lens of like, what are songs are talk, what are songs are talking about like land-based relationships, the fact that Bhangra started as a celebration of the harvest festival, and you had Visakhi, and Beautiful. even each dance move like Fasla and this, it's like literally like transporting crops from one side to another. No, is that yeah? So the Muslim Bhangra representative of like, you know, the genesis was. People who tended to the land, yeah, which harvest. transformed later into like a dance. Yeah, yeah. It's insane. So it's interesting. So there's a lot of themes about our relationship to land. And with the Gidda, which is a lot more of like a safe space for women, the women would get together in courtyards and sing about how they hate their mother-in-laws. And it was, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a really big theme. But it was like therapy at that time of what it means to process in a community, do that through song and dance. And so I think these touch points when I think back really informed cultural sustainability right mm. this idea that like culture is a vehicle for a specific language a specific ecology and that is so so inspiring for me to explore mm. because sustainability means so many things yeah but I think we're at a time with like the climate crisis and everything where we have enough information we need more meaning and if we need more meaning we need more identities to inform like what that actually means to you. Mm. What is your place-based relationship, whether that's London or LA via Punjab, you know? And that's what I really wanted to explore with my work. Why I find that super interesting is I think I grew up, especially going back to my countries of heritage, mm. or even like in um, suburban London where I'm from, um, which was a very diverse neighborhood, etc. I got really frustrated that people that looked like me often seemed like the most negligent of the climate around them. Mm. And growing up, you're young, impressionable, you could quickly probably assume that there's something about your culture that is neglectful of the climate and the environment. But what I'm hearing through your experience growing up is that actually it's the opposite. It's not a lack of culture that results in being negligent towards the environment, uh, towards being responsible and being a supporter of the climate. But it's because you had a lot of culture growing up that maybe you realize the importance and the significance of the environment and the climate around you. Yeah, I think diving deeper and digging stories that like unveiled the context of cultural touch points was really important to me. 
So like Bhangra was like one thing that it's a recent memory that I've unlocked. It's like, whoa, like not only was that a way to build community, but when I really looked at like what the songs are talking about, it unveiled a whole other understanding of the world. Um, and I think another thing was, you know, we had this whole idea of decolonizing fashion kind of growing online where people were like sporting their like ethnic wear. Um, and then it became a question of like, okay, if we're going to like kind of decolonize the aesthetics of the industry, what does it actually mean from a power dynamics perspective? Mm-hmm. So with that like foreground of working at this, you know, ethical fashion brand that was like super white and was like, yeah, buy your way into a new reality. I really started looking for an alternative way to kind of like build in this movement. And then I realized that, you know, labor exploitation was always talked about as this distant abstraction that happened overseas in our home countries, but it was actually happening in LA as well. Um, So for some context, LA's second biggest industry is like the cut and sew garment industry and it's run on the backs of undocumented folks. So you have a lot of really interesting dynamics of folks attempting um, folks attempting to speak out against wage theft and labor abuse, but being threatened with deportation and ICE. Um, so that was something that I, I became privy to. So I started kind of organizing in that space. And I think that really showcased a way of sustainability that was building power from the mm-hmm. bottom up and alternative ways of just you know, existing with one another. So that was a really inspiring time of what does it take to make a, to build a movement of like mutual care and looking at things like policy, but also just like awareness and grassroots movement building. Um, So that was a really important, I think, entry point for me to think about alternative modalities of sustainability. Yeah, powerful. I mean, it kind of reminds me of my, one of the things I wanted to kind of trap back to, I remember one of my trips to, be it Pakistan or even East Africa. And it's this kind of tension that happens between people who are children of immigrants from those countries and uh, the local locals who've you know been born and raised there. And going back, there is almost a, of course, there are parallel experiences in which we see the world very differently by virtue of like me growing up in London. I'm exposed to like things that my cousins back in Kenya would not have access to or Pakistan even. Um, and as a result, there is a bit of friction. There is a bit of tension. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you ever feel like your ideas, which are obviously shaped in a Western experience of culture and, and sustainability and um, and climate, do you ever feel like people back home, be it your countries of heritage, see your work differently as, to, as opposed to people here? Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic. I think, I wonder if growing up in the West, you're just hyper aware of the mentalities that frame your family life versus how you experience the world at school, right? Like individualistic versus collective mindsets. Um, But it's interesting you mentioned that because I spent last year in India. It was with this project with National Geographic, but I was like, here is an opportunity for me to deepen my practice. I talk about South Asia. I talk about the impacts of colonialism on our textile and fashion industries, but I really want to ground that, again, at the feet of elders and learn from those at the forefront. Mm -hmm. And so... When I went, it was a lot of like jokes from my cousin being like, well, what are, what's all this that you're like going on about of like preserving the spinning wheel and wearing natural textiles? And I think it is the reality to some degree of like they're navigating such distinct political spaces, so much turmoil that a lot of their immediate 
focus comes upon survival. So I wonder if it is the role of the diaspora to kind of reconsider these nuances, but it, there's no easy answer because right. I also know that we've been afforded so many privileges that allow us to kind of reflect on that. But with that said, a lot of that work in India was actually just centering myself with elders that I think are kind of the last frontier of what an alternative can look like in terms of how systems operate, how we kind of have a responsibility to one another. So a lot of like the actual work that I was doing there was with farmers who in Punjab, essentially in the 60s and 70s, there was something called the Green Revolution, which is not what it sounds like, but um, farmers were essentially forced to plant paddy or rice. Um, it was this whole scheme to increase yields of certain types of production. And it kind of wreaked havoc on the land because you were planting a type of crop that wasn't native to that space. So extremely water intensive. Pesticides were introduced. Um, so every year you have the water table falling, you're seeing the degradation of the soil. And at face value, yields are increasing, but overall the quality of the land has really degraded. But there is a whole movement right now of elderly farmers who have seen what things were like 50 years ago, who were planting native ecologies and sustenance farming that are like, we need to return to that. So I'll, I'll share a story with you that was really powerful. I was in what was historically the cotton belt region of Punjab, and I'm talking to this older couple who have really seen a lot of these changes. The husband is a farmer, his wife is a weaver. And as I'm talking to him about, you know, how so many things have changed, he's like, you know, you reminded me of something. I'm going to go bring you something. So he goes into his shed and he pulls out essentially like a little cloth bag and dumps it out on the manja or the cot. And it's a bunch of this like naturally brown cotton. And there's a bunch of it. And he said, 40 years ago, I had a feeling that things were going to change. And I had a feeling that we weren't going to see this indigenous type of cotton in this region anymore. So I made it a point to save it for future generations, but to be honest, kind of forgot about it in the process. And so that was such a powerful moment. I was with there with someone who was, you know, in this organization all about saving seeds whose jaw was on the floor. Mm. And so now they're attempting to germinate that seed and kind of revive a localized economy. Elderly women want to return to the spinning wheel and taking that cotton and constructing a whole artisan industry that's localized to that region. Um, and it begs the question of like, you know, so many of our cultures had these like decentralized systems that were really rooted in rural self-sufficiency and hyper-specificity. Where does that kind of lie in our world today? So I think the ideal future of fashion for me is actually tied to a deeper conversation of decentralizing our systems so we can honor all these different place-based cultures and practices that have gone back millennia and are tied to sustainability, but we don't talk about it like that. No, and, and and I think part of me feels really inspired by that dream of decentralizing entirely and allowing people to to go back to that hyper-specificity, but at the same time, I'm kind of the pessimist in me also is concerned about people living in a consumer society being inherently self-interested. And like when you talk about things about the climate and because it pertains all to all of us universally, equally, people, if you're going to be very sadist and pessimistic about the world, you could argue you are self-interested. Yeah. Like, it's amazing to hear those stories about people who want to go back to these incredible traditions of weaving and, and sewing and tending to the land, 
the other flip side of the coin i'm also seeing a world that is determined by like exploitation and even you know people like us doing it to their own people also so how do you navigate this world of trying to inspire a more ethical and sustainable uh reclaiming of heritage and tradition but at the same time live with the reality that hey look we are in a capitalistic consumer society and we somehow have to balance the two and play the game at the same time yeah I mean, in a nutshell, I think I've gotten very comfortable with being a walking, what's the word I'm looking for, oxymoron, and like really embracing the nuance that what it means to exist in the space that I do. So like in my work as like a sustainable fashion content creator online, oh my God, I think there are so many ethical dilemmas that underpin that sort mm. of idea or that role. I'm someone that's out here, you know, promoting less consumption or no consumption at all. But the way to monetize doing that in your work is working with brands that want you to push product. Sure, it's made of organic cotton, but there is a tension there. I think that's okay. I think. Well, how do you navigate that? And like, like get into the granular. Of yeah. That. Like, uh, you talk a lot about what I love about your work. You talk a lot about that and the importance of de-influencing. Yeah. The idea that this one person on social media can influence people to consume a certain product is inherently unsustainable, right? People have this like a fashion blogger and promotes a certain brand or a certain kind of fashion behavior, which inherently leads to some of the deterioration of the climate as we speak of it. Yeah. But you also operate on social media. Yeah. You, by every means of the word, are a influencer, right? So at the same time, you are trying to debunk this system that has allowed or elevated your voice to be able to access, have access to these thousands of people but you're also calling at the same time for it to be dismantled. Like, how do you navigate that oxymoron? The first thing I think is I acknowledge that I am open to my theory of change evolving day to day. I think that's something that our generation needs to kind of get more comfortable with. We expect people, especially people online that are engaging with themes of social justice and sustainability to have it all figured out. And we don't have a lot of grace for like, figuring things out as you go. And I think it goes back to that tension of what it means to be an individual navigating an inherently corrupt system in many ways. It's kind of like a deeper ethical dilemma of a Ford fellow who hates the Ford Foundation or an Amazon worker who hates Amazon, right? Of finding like the deeper story of what are your day-to-day responsibilities in terms of navigating capitalism and your duties to family, but being a lot more candid about what those tensions are. I think we need more of that because it creates more grace in this movement. The way that I've kind of sort of navigated it is really embracing this idea of de-influencing as of late of, okay, if I'm working with brands, can we root that in education and alternative narratives? And also being really clear about the contracts that I enter in. Contracts in the most general sense of the word, like, yes, this brand partnership is not going to save the world. It's not going to you know, change the game when it comes to sustainability. But can this fund larger legacy work that is maybe not on social media that can really underpin those shifts? Mm. Whether it's being in a room like this where there's interpersonal relationships or, you know, a film or a book. But I also don't want to take a dump on short form content or like the social media landscape. It is critical to our work today and visibility. You know, I can I can criticize short form content for what it's done for our attention spans, but I could also have the nuance to say it allows me to really make a certain idea palatable for many. 
I can criticize the idea of echo chambers online, but I can also go ahead and say, the internet has allowed me to find an amazing community of like-minded folks and not feel so isolated. So I think it's you know really embracing that nuance. Um, and there's this idea, I think Grace Lee Boggs had this quote, she's an amazing civil rights activist, that movements are made not from critical mass, but critical connections. Mm. And I think social media is this really interesting space where yes, there's critical mass that underpins it, but it can be an avenue for critical connections if you don't let it be the end all be all. 100%. Yeah. I definitely, and I definitely experienced that through my own work, but at the same time, you know, um, being who I am, I try my best to like re everything I do in some sort of meaningfulness or purpose. And I feel like once you enter that realm, at the same time, simultaneously, you're putting a target on your back. Why? Because what happens is you are perceived as trying to create an ideal. You're trying to like be like, hey, this is how the world should operate, or this is how you should behave. And people within online space operate in different ways, right? And as a result of trying to attain or represent something of higher values, people who are, um, how do you describe it? There might be people who are a bit more insecure in their own or just generally just quite negative in how they conduct themselves online um, would feel very threatened or angry at your attempt to represent something of higher values. Do you ever feel like you operating in a spate of climates, someone who's trying to like, trying her best to kind of envision a world that is a better place, have inadvertently put your, like a crosshair on your back where people are looking for you to put step, step wrong so they can kind of debunk your work and what you do? Yeah, there is a lot of this. I think I have thick skin, but I also think my community is pretty nice online. Mm. Hot take. This is, not, this is rare, I suppose. I wonder if it's the way that I, I do, again, Trojan horse. At face value, if you're like scrolling through my feed, you're like, ah, fashion, yeah. But, you know, maybe if you dig a, a bit deeper, you can like see the discourse on other things. I mean, there's always going to be folks that are like, oh, yeah, you're talking about disposability culture, but that's the whole edifice of capitalism. And it's like, yeah, it is, you know, and we can talk about that. But I just think there's a space you have to kind of be comfortable with is certain keyboard, keyboard warriors who can't change their mind. Mm. And I'm more interested in folks in that in between and mm. folks IRL, to be quite honest with you. Because fashion, I imagine, is even worse. Fashion, Isn't like when you think about consumer society, and correct me if I'm wrong, but mm. like when we think about consumerism, my first thought is like fashion. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's not like home interiors or whatever. When, yeah. I, when I think about the banks being called out, it's all like Shane and all these big fashion oh, brands sure. are the ones that are like being attacked. So, like for me, climate and fashion almost seems like antithetical to each other and like a very hostile environment to be walking in. Yeah. No, you're right. But I think it's that much more important to exist in that space as a result, right? Again, the biggest propagator of fast fashion, you could argue, has been social media and the mm. influencer. Everyday new outfits, you know, really creating this like aspirational idea behind waste and excess. And so I think that's why I'm so drawn to that space to subvert it in many ways and provide an alternative. Because I think we, we talk about representation and this and that, but I also think we need possibility models of what it means to exist in these systems while like actively subverting them in our own way. And I think social media at its core, it's, it's a tool, yeah? Um, and how you use it and the narratives you choose to kind of promote are really important to consider. But the internet also, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, it can limit the creativity a lot because I feel like early internet, 
there was so much fluidity and excitement, you know, web 1.0, we can call it. But now people are kind of operating in very hyper-specific formulas of what it means to be a creator. You go to this city, you take an outfit in this sort of spot. And that's something I'm also trying to like deprogram and challenge is like, can my work as a storyteller grow because of social media? If I make it an, an active experiment to be like, this is the programming and the expectation that I have to create, how do I subvert that? So it's about fashion, but it's also about storytelling in the most 100%, holistic sense. 100%. I think like, absolutely. For me, like, you know, I, I started getting called a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you're speaking at panels and stuff. And at first it made me feel very uncomfortable. But I guess in essence, it's like, it's what you do, right? You are, you are narrating an experience, which inadvertently makes you a storyteller. Um, and I kind of felt that like, I was never really... When people talk about video, they ask me about the mechanics of how you do this. Like, wow, like it, it looks great. Like, how did you study at a film school? Blah, blah, blah. I keep telling people I'm actually, to be honest with you, I was always passionate about the people. It was, the vehicle was irrelevant to me. Uh, if video wasn't trending right now through tech companies like Instagram and TikTok and like YouTube, I would have found another vehicle. And like, it was me, it was about the process, the creative process, which I found really inspiring. Yeah. Instagram dies tomorrow. Um, and there's another metaverse augmented reality experience, I would be on that because it's the medium of the day in which I want to tell the story. So I'm not beholden on the vehicle per se, but my creativity is formed by the formats which I can access the people. Yeah. And that's what I'm passionate about, right? When someone tells me, like someone asked me the other day, what do you most, what do you most love about the work that you do or how people respond to the work that you do? And someone said to me, um, and I said to that person, when someone feels like I've articulated an experience of theirs in which they couldn't before. And that for me is like gold. Yeah. And that's what I'm passionate about. And that's what like, I, I don't care the vehicle in which I get, I get to do that in, whether it's video or, or other new futuristic forms of ter- storytelling. But what we need to be as creatives in this space is not beholden on the vehicle, but the story. Yeah. And I feel like, you being very open to like short form and um, Instagram and using that vehicle because that's where the people are. Yeah, and yeah. Like, if you want to have access to them, you need to play that. You need to play that game. And when I think about like so many, so many of like the issues of this moment, it goes back into a crisis of storytelling and the stories we tell ourselves as a culture. So again, fashion right now is underpinned by disposability, excess, pain, violence of a system. But fashion can also underpin symbiotic relationships with land, wanting to know more about the artisans and that process and like connecting yourself to what has become an extremely alienating supply chain. Yeah. So I think it's all about considering the larger questions of, yeah, what our culture promotes and how storytellers can kind of. I want to zoom on this personally, selfishly, forgive me, but yeah. like, how do you do that? The mechanics of storytelling in that context. Mm. We're talking about, and and correct me if I'm wrong, I I am a layman in this space, which is why I value your work so much. But like, there's an assumption that there's a disconnect between how we consume because we are disconnected to the humans that make the products that we have. Yeah. There's a, somehow we stop seeing them as humans as opposed to these clogs that are creating this perfectly packaged and pressed shirts. And because there's a disconnect between the 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 producer and the package that we buy, there's very little human kind of relatability between the two. So I'm assuming also that's a perfect grounds to storytell. But how do you, as a fashion storyteller, um, orientating around the climate and sustainability, how do you craft a story 
that gets people who had been previously alienated from these producers um, to make them feel emotionally invested in these communities. Yeah, I mean, there's no one-size-fits-all approach, but I can give you a few examples. I think one thing is we have very binary thinking in our world today of like, ah, oh, what's the most sustainable fabric out there? That's like a very common question you'll be asked. And it's like, instead of asking what's the most sustainable fabric out there, can we look at a local space and be like, what grows in this region? And is there a rooted history about this sort of, you know, fiber? Maybe it's flax, maybe it's cotton. What's the history of that? Um, it goes into empire. It goes into colonialism. It goes into a woman that's trying to reclaim a certain craft. I think that's the approach is like there's this macro story that we can tell about systems and colonialism, but there's also a very intimate, emotionally rooted, spiritual understanding that people have with land. And so I think that's the space that I operate in. I also love showcasing the process of like how intensive it is to create these, th these garments, right? So that's another space that exists in. And then also how we kind of fashion ourselves in terms of personal style. You know, I think that's actually a lost art is we have so many mannequins and marketing campaigns to tell you like what's in right now, but really fashioning a personal style is such an intimate mm -hmm. act. And that's something I love talking about. So I think those are the major themes that kind of frame this work, but there's so many ways to do it. I mean, and uh, I'm sure you don't mind me sharing, but me and Adiz were hanging out the other day and there was a, not a conflict, but we were kind of talking about how our different approaches to it. Whereas she's very like Virgo energy, very organized. <laughs> Even the approach to this conversation, she was like, yo, do you have like a manifesto and agenda? And I was like, yeah, it looks like this. <laughs> <laughs> but me, I'm a bit more spirited and it's a bit more kind of felt and like we just kind of go off the vibe and the energy. Yeah. And that kind of leveraged into the conversation about storytelling and the approach is the same. For me, it's like my ideal situation is I like turn up in a context in an environment, feel the energy, what's the conversations, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it works and Aditi similarly it works equally but it's a lot more shaped it's a lot more formulated you learn a lot more because it's a lot more organized in terms of information but my argument against that is where we kind of had conflict was we're trying to get people to emotionally invest in these humans and storytelling yes information is key and precedent but how do we get them to emotively feel like these are people that I can relate and care about yeah. the grandmother weaving how does she become this image that I see on a screen as opposed to like a person or a grandmother that I feel like, wow, I want to, I want to help this person. This person is part of my global community that I feel emotionally invested in. And is information enough in that context to compellingly, compellingly tell a story that might inspire others to feel like, hey, like this is, this is worth saving. And that's where I struggle with, uh, and this is not an answer by any means, but actually like an invitation for people to continue the discussion. Like I have no idea. And I don't to this mm. day. And I continually, as I make videos, it, you chisel and you, you learn, you make mistakes and you feel like, oh, this could have been better. But there is a, there is a, what I'm finding within my own like medium of storytelling is a, a tension or a conflict or a barrier between the balance between emotions and information. Mm. And for example, I was in, to share a story where I did a, it was Uzbekistan. I was in Uzbekistan and the whole idea behind that, we did this Topi project and the idea was textiles could be a vehicle in which people connected with a people they had no idea about. And this is before people were talking about the Uyghur community, which is a, which is a, a, a oppressed and marginalized community in East Turkestan. Um, but now there's a lot of common knowledge about it, which is amazing. But back then, people had very little reference for it. And what I realized is that 
the Uyghur people had very little luxury of be having their story told. Mm -hmm. So how can you expect a global community of people to emotionally invest in these people or to give their money or to give their support or if there hasn't been poetry, if there hasn't been stories, if there hasn't been imagery that shows these people in a light which other people can relate to. And I see the same variables in like the fashion space. It's like, you know, when we talk about these elders who are cultivating the land and we talk about producers of like textiles and traditional cottons, there's so much like information out there that people have become emotionally apathetic. And how do we cut that? How do we cut through that and start making people feel like emotionally invested in these spaces again? Yeah, I mean, it's hard because we have our approaches, but I also don't know what the silver bullet solution is. I don't I don't think there is one. You know, there's a lot of talks in the climate space right now of like, how do you galvanize folks from like ambition to action? I just came from a conference. That was the, the tagline, ambition to action. Um, you know, I think there is a really interesting conversation right now of like higher frequency emotions like love community like those are the avenues to go through but I also wonder like is there a subset of the population that is driven by guilt and fear I, I don't know you know but I think that goes back into this idea of why we need more diversity of storytellings you know storytellers not just because that's the right politically correct thing to do but I don't know what the touch point is going to be for someone to start caring about this um, but I think for me, South Asian identity has become such a powerful vehicle to express that in a way that's relevant to me. And I think that's another dimension of it. As, as storytellers, we're always kind of reflecting on like, you know, how to make that impact beyond yourself. But as a creative, as a, as a sensitive creative, I also have to think about what feeds me and what that story is. Mm. And I'm very happy in this space. And I think it's selfish in many ways, but I want to learn from those elders. I want to go back to the motherland. And I think that in, of it, in and of itself is really important to consider in this work. Massively. Like, Personal sustainability, yeah. And like, I think that's a, an amazing point to just kind of like drill home. Thank you for sharing that. But like people talk so much about like authenticity of the creator and, and, and what makes you successful. And I think that's the beginning it's like there has to be like a sincere compassionate like attachment to the cause where you would be doing it whether or not there was a career clout associated with it in general and um and it's evident in your work the reason it's able to like resonate with people is because they feel the sincerity in that process as well um have there been and i'm key i'm key to kind of go a couple steps back and yes i do love talking about elders and i think what i loved about mm -hmm. having the Sudani elders here is that kind of just gave the space a kind of blessing almost. And I feel, and I'm sorry to the Gen Zs in the audience who I love, and I, and yes, they will save the world for sure. But what's ironic, oh, I'm feeling a bit of tension here, am I right? <laughs> but what I love, what I love about the conversation is that Gen Z should definitely have like vested interest in climate because the, the world that they're inheriting, it will be theirs and they should mm -hmm. have a say in how it operates. But I also grew up in a cultural framework where you sat at the feet of your elders. And it wasn't until you did time in this cultural framework that you earned the right to have a voice in issues that pertain to the community. So at one level, I feel like, yes, power to young people. But like under 25, like I, I got told like I wasn't I'm still I'm like in my 30s and still like barely get a word into my family. But like there was a rites of passage that you had. And for me, spiritually, I feel like there's a there's a you know, there's an importance in that. And what do I mean by that? For example, it reminds me of this. You've seen 300. 
Sparta, Leonidas, oh, yeah, yeah, Half yeah, Naked. Yeah, when I mentioned Half Naked Men, I'm like, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> this is Sparta? That one? Yes, right? that okay, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a scene in Sparta where Leonidas... Have I said the story before? No, I haven't. Cool. Thank God. So there's a scene in 300 where Leonid the young Leonidas, prince of Sparta, goes out into the wilderness. He's sent to the wilderness. And he is only accepted by the community if he makes it back, back alive. It's the wild. There are wolves. There are dangerous things that, that could kill him. But they're almost formative to who he needs to be to be deemed as king of Sparta. He makes it back. And it's only then Sparta sees him as the king. And the metaphor of the rite of passage is that as young people, we need to do the time. We need to learn through the experiences of people who are older than us that have gone through it, sit at their feet, because that time is so formative for our learning process. And I feel like a lot of us, and I include myself in this process also, we like to run with the idea that we have all the solutions to the world without actually doing the time to sit with the people who have lived in it three times longer than us and hear that maybe the solutions have already been tried and instead of inheriting what's already been done, we try and recreate the wheel and we've wasted a whole generation of learning as a, as a part of that. So my question to you is in issues of climate and the future and young people, do, young, do elders play a role in that process? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. In the climate space, you see a hyperfixation on youth. In the fashion space, you see an obsession of youth. You know, it makes something a metric of relevance and sexier when they're younger. Um, and it's something I see in my space as well. I'm like, what, I'm gonna be 27. Am I gonna be irrelevant soon? Like, you know? Wow, um, no chance. <laughs> <laughs> but I think with the foreground of like me attempting to deepen my practice, going to India, doing that work, what I think we need to really strike a balance of is like, yeah, intergenerational movement building. Because the youth, the youth, they have the vitality. They have a very apt understanding of the failure of our systems mm. because we're living among so many crises of our time, right? So I don't think it's about undermining the aptness of like the youth that we have today. They have so much access to information. But I think rooting this movement in the elders in terms of their wisdom and their experiences is so, so important because we create this dynamic where we, where we assume we're the first to navigate these things. And I think that's what's really hard to see. Um, Have there been any elders in your life in which you are very attached to in your kind of learning process? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, to the point on storytelling, um, when I was 19, so again, quite early in this work, new online, trying to like understand what my, my work in this space was gonna look like. I was on Tumblr yet again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I come across this beautiful black and white photo of this woman in a sari leaning like this on a newsroom desk. And the caption said Mohanjit, her name, fashion designer and journalist in the New York Times newsroom in the 1960s. Immediately, I'm like simping over this woman. I'm like, who are you? Um, Google her, don't really find anything at all. Go on Facebook, and I find a Facebook profile with that same photo, and I add it. And I'm like, hi, you don't know me, but I'd love to know more about your story as someone who was studying journalism and was you know, developing this acute interest in fashion. Obviously, never hear back. Um, fast forward six months get a scholarship to study abroad in Italy. I go, three-month program. Last week of the program is rolling around and friend request accepted. And I get a response and she's like, hi, Aditi. If you're ever in Paris, come visit me. 
at this address. So I go out of my way to go to Paris for this idea of a woman. I don't know anything about her. It could have been anyone. It could have it been could. a catfish. It could have been. It really could. But I don't know. There's just like a very magnetic energy to this photo. And so I, I went, checked into some shady hostel on top of a nightclub. And I'm walking to this address thinking all of those thoughts of like, this could be a catfish. Like, what the hell am I doing? And so I get to this, you know, the street all these like Parisian boutiques and then I see the name Mohenjit and I'm like damn it's a very Punjabi name Mohenjit Garewal and I don't know what she looks like beyond this photo yeah but then I see this old lady in the window just like and I'm like oh, she could be my nanny she could be my daddy I walk in and she immediately turns around is like Aditi is that you and gives me a hug <laughs> hands down most cinematic moment of my life um, so we start talking this woman grew up during partition was in Punjab, family relocated, saw a newspaper clipping at age 16 for a scholarship to study abroad in the States from UCLA. I was there on a scholarship with UCLA, weird resemblance, I'm like, oh. So she came to the States, uh, experienced the civil rights era, what it meant to be a brown woman in the States at that time. World War II was in the foreground at one point. Ended up being a writer for the New York Times, Ended up being uh, a tour guide at the UN when it was very new. Ended up falling in love with the first diplomat of India to the US, was the second woman. Ends up in Europe, gets heartbroken, goes back to India after a decade. And she was very young when she left, yeah, 16. And so when she went back to India, she got really interested in artisans and fashion and rediscovering, not rediscovering, but discovering India through the lens of fashion. But fashion as a way to understand identity, um, relationships to the land and community. So I'm listening to this woman being like, what the hell are you like me time traveling in a, like a past generation? And she's like, you know, it's getting late. Where are you staying? I'm like, ah, some hostel. She's like, come stay with me. So I ended up staying with her for two weeks. I call it my Parisian love story. <laughs> And I got to first see the idea of this woman. So she has a boutique. This woman's now in her 90s, and she still has this boutique. Um, still goes to India, has her workshop with artisans. But fashion was her vehicle to really understand of what it meant to proclaim her identity in a white space in a very unapologetic manner. Um, but for her, she's like, I don't in her own words, I don't give a shit about fashion, trans this, all of this is meaningless. This is about survival of a culture. Mm -hmm. It's about maintaining maintaining an agrarian soul of a nation because mm -hmm. we have a very intimate relationship between land and fashion systems. Is she implying that like people experience fashion differently? Yeah, and India I think is like a really good example, South Asia in general, you know, fashion is an extension of the land and the labor that frames it. So can it, can it bear added significance for some people more so than others? What? The like what we fashion? wear? Oh, yeah. Like in the context of like I'm, why I'm thinking out loud is yeah. in the context of like being children of immigrants, like what we wear is almost even more important, arguably, in the context of being disconnected from who we are and our heritage, Yeah. as opposed to someone who doesn't have that dichotomy inside their brain, right? Yeah. You're just putting on a t-shirt. Yeah. But me wearing a shirt that has like the patterns of a shamal suddenly hasn't which is a yemeni turban suddenly has like a meaning political context yeah no it's it's really it's you're right there is so much 
weight in terms of how we fashion ourselves and what it means about our identities. And I think her story unveiled that to me. But I mean, so for some context, it's been eight, nine years since I've met her. I don't know if that math is mathing. I try and see her every year. I decided to make a documentary about not only her and her life, but a portrait of intergenerational friendship sitting at the feet of our elders. But this elder specifically is like, I don't even know what's going on. I'm grappling with all the questions that you are about hyphenated identity. Uh, What does legacy mean for me? How do I make an impact? And I think that was one of the most profound she's just a very profound friendship in my life and I think again it really drives home this idea of I am not at the forefront of exploring these intersections it's Mm. been done and we're unraveling what that means together and that's the story that I'm interested in telling and Mm. maybe I should do more personal I need to like learn a lot from you because I'm too much in my academic world sometimes but no but that story itself is I think very powerful I think this mirror kind of generation and even everything you said about building on what's been done is yeah. actually really radical in this space. Um, I'm really concerned about the space, actually, because I feel like there aren't enough people like you, people with backgrounds like yourselves in this climate space. Why is that? Is it that our communities care less about these things? Are we more superficial? Are we based on ideas of just basically simply consuming that we've lost a sense of who we are and how the climate pertains to our lived realities also? I would push back. I think we're definitely out there. I think it's a matter of who gets FaceTime. Yeah, I think, you know, we have this beautiful movement growing online of people of so many different backgrounds kind of contextualizing what sustainability means to them in their culture. Interesting. And it's growing. I, I do think, again, the climate movement, like so many others, very whitewashed and who gets, you know, celebrated as a whole nother can of worms that we could get into but i think we're out there but i think there is a space for more possibility models you know creators like you that are giving a blueprint of what it means to use a vehicle whether it's food or fashion to dive a bit deeper that's what i hope we can you know just celebrate more of and these sorts of spaces are so important well, who, in who that. Keeps these spaces in that you'd also think ironically in a time of like social media which is such a democratic space that you have, you can build an audience and no one is telling you how you build that audience or gatekeeping that followership from you. So who is gatekeeping people who look like us from being more out there about talking about these things? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the power of social media, even in my own context. Like I really owe social media for giving me like a somewhat democratized way to get visibility. But I guess it's like, what do we consider validation of our work? Is it being featured in major publications? Is it like giving the, given that stage at some platform or some conference? Like they're out there, Nadir. I, I truly, truly believe this, but I do think like we grow in confidence when we see other folks doing this in community. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. But no, it does. I'm also really curious about how you feel when you are on these panels. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a weight of a community on your shoulders as one of the few examples of people who are publicly speaking about it? Yes and no. I think I never want to like proclaim this idea that I am the only one. Like I operate with a community, a collective of folks, many of which that are in this room that are really at 
really changing the narratives around environmentalism that exist um, and making it personalized in their own way and making sure they're talking about colonialism and white supremacy as the underpinning of the climate crisis. Mm. And that's a movement that, you know, didn't start with our generation. It goes back to the civil rights era and things like that. People have been making these connections between like interlinked systems of oppression for time and time again. Um, I think what I kind of reflect on is like contextualizing that in a South Asian context, you know, what British colonialism did there and what that meant for fashion systems. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I think about. I just think about how important it is, and I'm trying to be better with it, to have the things that I wear tell some sort of story about who I am. And people like undermine and think fashion might be petty or mundane, but actually I see it as hugely significant. How like, for example, my Indonesian grandmother didn't really talk about her heritage at all. She was very traumatized by that whole experience. She was, the Dutch came and colonized, basically destroyed everything in the region. And she fled with two brothers. Those two brothers passed away. She ends up in East Africa and she meets this beach boy Kenyan who falls in love with her and ends up in East Africa. She's a solitary Indonesian woman in East Africa. So her nickname is Ilya Jawia. Can you imagine this like fair skinned Indonesian girl in East Africa? She stood out like a sore thumb. And for my dad, I think the trauma was too close. But for me, I always had, I had an intense curiosity about it. But there was very minimal information because my grandmother passed away when I was very young. But what there was, was clothes. There was, there was inherited clothes. And in Indonesia, we have a textile pattern called batik. And it's basically a wax print on a sarong. But I just thought these were pretty designs and patterns that didn't really have any meaning but then looking into them more you find that there is a deep meaning and there's a deep tradition of communicating through textiles and this batik over a period of time and I'm paraphrasing what is a very long story but this batik was actually indicative of my grandmother's age where she was at the time it was made what village it was made in and where she was living and residing in so what I had had inherently was a map a treasure map of like learning more about my grandmother. And it led to this reclamation story of my heritage, which made me feel so much closer to her as a result. Mm -hmm. And then I'm thinking today, with the clothes that I used to wear, my grandkids are probably gonna have to like deal with my stuff after I'm not here anymore. But what waypoints do they have to who I am? There is nothing about my Nikes or my like cause outfits and that tells some sort of story about the world I live in today or the challenges that I've gone through. And I feel like this deep tradition, which is so embedded in meaning, is that risk of really dying. And I think what's so beautiful about your work and going back, making people understand that our cultures are so rooted in poetry of textiles. It's not just clothes that we put on, but it's like, it's, it's beautiful and it's meaningful and it's intergenerational and it's spiritual. And I think once we understand these things, we really get a better emotional understanding of how important these things are. It's not just clothes, it's not just sustainability. I think for people from our backgrounds, it's, it's everything, it's heritage kind of being distilled in these cloth, this fabric that you can touch. But I'm sure you witness this in India where are some of these traditions still alive and kicking and are they still important to people? And is there a, some sort of renaissance of like making it more accessible to people around the world? Yeah, I'm seeing this in Punjab specifically. Um, there is, again, a crop of elders that are really talking a lot about intergenerational knowledge transfer and what that means when a culture hangs in the balance. When I was walking around Punjab, one thing I noticed is a lot of households 
on top of their water tank on their roof. They have a little cement plane if their um, child has gone off to Canada or the States and it's a point of pride. Um, but there's also a lot of conversations right now of like, what does it mean when your culture hangs in the balance, you know? Um, who is going to continue this tradition? And so I just think it's, it's a very complicated thing because there's so much that plagues these regions and it's not gonna fixate solely on textiles, but if you actually understand the links that textiles have with agricultural systems and with sustainability, like it gets a lot more deeper rooted. Um, this comes after like in 2020, I don't know if you'll remember the farmer protests in India. That was a huge awakening for the youth in India to think about just how broken our farming systems are in terms of sustainability and how we need reimagination. And so that energy is very hyper present right now and people being like, okay, we repealed three specific farm laws in India, but now we have to kind of go deeper with this whole situation. Mm. So I see it growing, you know, mm. there's always going to be some folks that, you know, maybe don't find value in those things and are mm. maybe hyper fixated on coming to the States and having opportunities that objectively that we have been afforded. But I think the tide is changing. Mm. I see it growing. It's quiet, but it's there. And that gives me hope. I mean, it goes back to this, what we mentioned earlier, and I'll close on this and maybe your closing statement as well is, is this tension between diaspora and people who are still living in these areas is we see culture differently. It plays a different role in our lives. And a lot of the conversations that I found really interesting that I was having in Pakistan is that I had, I placed an added significance on things in which they saw were just like, these are just things. Yeah. Why do you see them in this way? Um, and I, I do think in a context of, you know, through your work, I'm hearing so much about empowering these communities. But at the same time, I'm also hearing the fact that by virtue of you being or having the privilege of the education that you've had in the West, you have an added responsibility to start thinking more meaningfully about these things also. Mm. So I'm also hearing that we do have a role to play back in these places um, that could help better the situation. But I'm also hearing at the same time that we should allow them to kind of self-organize and empower the communities themselves, where it feels like how do people like our children of immigrants like me and you come back and like better these communities or or help create a more desirable future for the communities that we feel emotionally connected to yeah i think you know if we think about diaspora communities as this like bridge there's so much that we can do in championing those mentalities and modalities wherever you are rooted like bring that to your spaces but also there is so much that we can do in terms of like providing resources and visibility to the stories that still exist back at home, wherever that may be. So I guess with India specifically and my work there right now, it's again, deepening my practice, but also allowing that to be seen in its own way. I think they're not gonna have the same access to social media, but we're operating in this really interesting time where I always say, like, we don't need to reinvent the wheel when it comes to sustainability. It's following the leads of cultures that have embodied this, but we actually don't have enough stories of what that specifically means yes. in specific contexts. Yes, exactly. And again, our generation that we're navigating right now, like, what often gives me hope when I'm feeling a lot of despair or eco-anxiety is how much change that we have witnessed from our current generation, from our grandmothers. Think about how much the world has changed and let that be a testament of how much change can take place in terms of the values that dictate our societies, the mentalities that we choose to embody. 
Um, and again, learn from those histories. It's not about reinventing the wheel. So mm. I think that's the really interesting balance that we have to operate in. That's beautiful. No, absolutely. And I've, what I feel really inspired by is like, you know, climate, caring about this planet isn't something that we're being taught, especially in the kind of Western context in which we live in, but it's intrinsically part of what makes us who we are. All of our cultures at some level embodied some sort of holistic way of navigating this planet, being custodians of this earth is a huge part of my spiritual context in Islam where we've talked about how important it is to like look after this world, this loan that's been give, gifted to you, this gift. And I feel really inspired by the fact that my tradition has this, where it makes me feel a lot more emotionally invested in figuring out solutions for it also. And I think in many ways because of colonialism and it goes into privilege and sustainability, we have this false idea that I've really been trying to like reflect on in our world that if you are fighting for people and the planet, we have the assumption that that will mean a lack of material security. Like we're gonna be sacrificing something. Whereas in reality, it's fighting for people and planet that would give us the most security existentially, emotionally, physically. And I think that's the rewiring that I've been really reflecting on, right? Like we think it has to exist at odds with what we, how we operate in this world today. But I also think that's the difference between seeing ourselves only through the lens of our individual action versus existing in systems. That's why you gotta sign that petition um, because if we see ourselves as like individuals operating and organizing in a collective, that's when you shift systems. Yeah, do all of the individual actions, be a conscious consumer, but recognize where true power lies and what those levers are really gonna look like. And I think that's why the work that you're doing is so important is it goes beyond, you know, shop secondhand, which is great, but really interrogates the system, which is important. You're right, if we do eradicate the beast that is fast fashion, the world is not gonna look like it looks like currently. Um, it, two ideas come to mind. One is the degrowth movement. That doesn't mean the end of business as we know it. It means more secondhand systems, more swapping systems, more repair and take back programs. It's an alternative economy to a very linear system that we've had currently, which is create, consume, dispose. But we also have to acknowledge that like the planet planetary boundaries that we have currently are telling us that we can't continue with this current trajectory. Um, there is an idea in the climate justice world of a just transition of if you were to eradicate the fossil fuel industry, what would that mean for the millions of jobs for folks in that space? So it would also be supplementing a just transition in the fashion context making sure that folks in the garment space or just factory settings have alternative modes of work. But it is a decentralized system that can really give light to that. And what we're seeing in so many contexts around the world, South Asia specifically, is that people are leaving agrarian backgrounds, agricultural backgrounds to work in factories. And yes, we can make an argument of jobs, but they are being exploited at the end of the day. This is not a type of work more often than not that is rooted in respect and you know being able to provide in a holistic way so i think we really have to dive a bit deeper of eradicating an industry will of course demand reimagination but it's not going to require reinventing the wheel as well i think what made you what made that sound less daunting to me was that you're right totally in the last few generations so many systems have completely 
changed. And when you think about climate change in the entirety of existence, that it's totally feasible that a new framework and a way of thinking can be done over the next two or three generations. I think I traditionally just felt like it will take so long for this to work and for this to happen, but we have to think about it in terms of steps and yeah. it will get there eventually. Um, and it's all possible. Editi, thank you so much. I think there is so much that I've learned. Some of the primary things that, you know, it, our cultures are predicated on these issues and they're hugely significant. And it's not about reinventing the wheel, it's just about realigning and reattaching ourselves to this heritage and really inquiring within our given environments. All of us here come from different cultures and spiritualities and inclinations, but scratch deep enough, guaranteed to find a waypoint a trajectory, a map in which how you should gently navigate this planet in a way that is sustainable and circular and beautiful. And I'm very grateful for Aditi for blessing the space. And thank you for your work, for articulating it so sophisticatedly, powerfully. And we've all learned a lot through that. I encourage you to follow her and her work and what she's been doing. But also melt in the space, meet people who are aligned in the same work that she's doing, but also people very differently. And hopefully the conversation can continue. I just ask you now to give her a warm, warm round of applause.